doubts caused by inadequate foundations. And I hope that by the time we're done, that'll be clear to you what I'm talking about there. The text we're going to start working with is 1 Peter 3, verse 15. These are very familiar words. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. It is always, it is always, not in the religious sense of the word, but in a literal sense of the word, it is always a sacred time when we open up your word, the idea that the creator of this universe, the one who formed each one of us in our mother's womb, talks to us, is a speaking God, that we have sentences with nouns and adjectives and verbs and adverbs from the Holy Spirit is a miracle beyond telling. We are finite, we are limited, we are fallen. And oh, how we need you, Holy Spirit, to come and open our minds to your truth this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Notice those words, prepared to make a defense. They kind of explain Peter's intent. It's... it's Notice, it's not that we're to be ready to explain what we believe. But we're to be ready to explain why we believe it. So so we're to give a reason, not a recitation. A reason for the hope. It's not the what that's called for. It's the why. Why do you believe it? So this is a series on on the... uh, unescapable dark thoughts of doubts that come at different seasons and times and for different reasons. Last week, we looked at doubts that come from a distorted picture of God. Remember the illustration of meeting someone at the airport, meeting a stranger, but you have an idea of what the person looks like, and so because you have a preconceived image, you don't recognize the person when he or she gets off the plane. The picture we have of the person has a great deal to do with the kind of reception we will give And it has a lot to do with the kind of relationship we will have with that person. When we looked at the source of doubts, we looked at doubts that come from a distorted concept of God. And we tracked it down to two things. Very quickly, first, there are doubts that come because when a person was first saved, he or she only saw that that salvation that encounter with God only saw it as dealing with the externals of life, cleaning up the outside of life, swearing, stealing, adultery, pornography. But he didn't abandon and replace old patterns, old ways of thinking about God and his world. So the conversion experience is smaller than our Lord wants it to be. 
Secondly, another source, we said that there are doubts that arise after conversion because the Christian can, through the influences of the media, materialism, and unguarded friendships. Those are the three things we talked about. Through the media, materialism, and unguarded friendships, a person can let a distorted mindset and worldview kind of infiltrate and shape his perception of spiritual things. What I'm saying is beliefs can be neutered long before they're denied. And that can happen without that person ever sensing the decay of what were once really established and relevant spiritual truths. So in these two ways the professing Christian ends up with such a misshapen idea of God, God's expectations, and the Christian life that, of course, he will find his faith too remote and too irrelevant to long sustain a vibrant walk with the Lord. Today we're dealing with a different kind of doubt. Today I'm talking about doubt that comes from inadequate foundations. These are more of an intellectual nature. They won't all be, but this morning will be. This person knows what he believes. Maybe unlike the person in the first lesson, this Christian does have a handle on true doctrine. He has an adequate picture of God. He or she knows what is meaningfully true and what isn't. And maybe you're thinking, well, intellectually, Pastor Don, isn't, isn't that good enough? I understand what the Bible says about God. What else do I need? God, salvation, redemption, grace, heaven, hell. Isn't that enough? Well, yes and no. I mean, certainly it is enough in order to be saved. Any person who knows the truth, like we said just a few minutes ago, the truth about his own sin... The truth about Jesus dying for his or her sin. The reality of grace, the gospel as it's revealed in God's word. That's enough. That's enough to come to Christ. It is enough to be saved simply to know the truth of the Christian faith and to live it out as God enables you. But there's also a sense in which, no, it's not enough. It's not enough just to know the truths of the scriptures and This is the point of today's study on doubt. The idea is this. If you are unable to give a why to your faith, you may not long be able to give a why not to your doubts. Sooner or later, however sincere you are, you're going to come up against someone, something, who is going to challenge you beyond your ability to answer. And odds are, he's going to come up with a why question, not a what question. It it happens all the time. People find their faith toppling, not because it wasn't true, but because they didn't know why it was true. Point number one. How does faith end up with inadequate foundations in our minds and and hearts? Well, there are sources to this problem. And until we track them down and 
face them, we may find ourselves, in spite of our sincerity, we might find ourselves sowing the seeds for future doubts in our own lives. Here are some very common problems. Let me just go through a few of them. A. Sometimes people are actually taught that experience alone is an adequate foundation for faith. And if you don't think that's true, that we aren't actually taught that experience all by itself is an adequate foundation for faith, then you didn't grow up in a church where we all used to sing, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. That's true. Experience is absolutely essential. I mean, facts stored up in the head do not necessarily a Christian make. Each person needs to experience new birth personally. So, So my message this morning is not an argument against the importance of genuine Christian experience. But remember, we're dealing with combating doubt, not how to become a Christian. Faith in Jesus Christ is all that is needed to be born again. It is not all that is needed to resist doubt. Forgive me, but there are many ways in which the contemporary kind of seeker church movement actually contributes to this problem. Because in an effort to attract quick crowds and large crowds, churches often cater to the shortest route to pleasing the unchurched rather than feeding and discipling the saints. I watched a video. I watched a video this past week from a pastor who was advertising saying they were cutting all the fat out of their services and going to have an hour-long service because... There were lots of unchristian people and anybody can come to church for an hour who maybe wouldn't want to come for 90 minutes. I get everybody can do their own thing any way they want to do it. It's a free country. I thought about why we do church. And maybe you're here today and you, and you, don't, you don't get the basic philosophy of our church. This is a pause in the sermon, comma. We, we do almost nothing in our Sunday services geared to the unchurched. And that's intentional, not accidental. I hope we're not seeker insensitive. We don't, we don't kind of find the, the lowest level we can put the bar so people in the community can come in here and not feel out of place. What we're trying to do is to train a bunch of people to deeply, seriously, passionately follow Jesus so they can go out there into the world and reach it and touch it with the grace and power of Jesus. That's a totally different approach to church. You would never do prayer groups in a church if you were gearing it to people outside your church, correct? Not in a million years. You don't preach through Romans, for goodness sake. If you're thinking about how to interest people who have no interest in church. 
But if you can get a whole bunch of people who are deepening walk with Jesus, growing in understanding, loving, appreciating the word, worshiping the Lord, and they're out there touching all sorts of lives. So there are ways in which churches can actually contribute to this problem of being taught that the experience alone. I listen to people who tell me about different churches. There are fast-growing churches all over Canada, and I've talked to people about what they like about those worship structures. They'll tell me they like the music, they like the lighting, that it's lively, it's upbeat. They like bringing cappuccinos into the sanctuary. They really like, they like the warm fellowship, the coffee, donuts, the interaction with people. They like the drama. They like the videos. They have a wonderful ministry to kids. And in all of that, there's something they haven't said. I have yet to talk to someone who will say, I go to this church because I'm learning so much that I didn't know before from God's word. Why is that such a big problem, Pastor Don? Get over it. I'm over it. But it is a huge problem because whenever anything takes the place of growing in truth in the Christian life, something in the New Testament pattern of discipleship is getting short-circuited. And somewhere down the road, when the worship isn't as hot and the miracles aren't as plenty and the friends have moved on to a new town, the foundation for faith that was laid is going to be challenged. Doubts are going to come. Questions are going to come. There's going to be a whole generation of Christians who have been taught to enjoy deeply and feel deeply and relate deeply but never think deeply about their faith. Please understand, I'm not saying these people don't have genuine faith. I wouldn't question that in a million years. That's not my business. What I am saying is there was never established a foundation for the faith that exists. These people do believe. Perhaps they believe passionately. I don't doubt that. But the real question is, why? Why do they believe? Could they, in keeping with Peter's instructions in 1 Peter 3.15, give a defense for why they believe what they believe? Here's another cause of this problem. B, sometimes... People form their faith for the wrong reason. Let me give you the worst reason for faith, and yet one of the most common. There are many Christians who have formed their faith, and it's a genuine faith, simply because it worked in their lives. Let me say it as clearly as I can. Do not... Do not become a Christian because it works for you. Don't ever put your hand up at Cedarview. Give your heart to Jesus because it works for you. We are not Christians because our faith works. We are Christians because our faith is true. Pastor Don, that seems like a strange thing to say. Listen, Mormons, Hindus... Muslims, New Agers can all give powerful testimony of how their faith works for them. 
They can tell you about the benefits that their faith has brought. But that's not why Christians hold to their faith. In fact, this is what, this is what separates the Christian faith from the others. Christians hold to their faith because it's true. That's the central reason for their faith. All sorts of faiths work. If by that you mean people can get peace of mind, a sense of direction and purpose, clarity and focus in life, serenity, good family life, good moral teachings. That's not unique to Christianity. I want you to know that what I'm saying here is scriptural. There's no getting around the central place given to absolute truth in the New Testament in the presentation of the Christian faith. Listen to Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. I think it's on two slides. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. I don't care if it makes you feel wonderful. Do you see that? It's vain, useless. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, he says it again, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, notice, we have, we have hope. This is not a negative. This is someone who really finds hope. Oh, this is precious. This is wonderful. Yeah, but if he's not raised, if you just have hope in this life only, pity you. (laughs) Did you see what Paul is saying? Don't, Don't tell me about how wonderful you feel. Couldn't care less how wonderful you feel. Don't tell me you think there might be some kind of afterlife. Couldn't care less what you think about the afterlife. Did Jesus Christ come out of that tomb or didn't he? That's what Paul says. I don't care about your emotions, your subjective state, your whims, up and down, all over the place. Do you see that the issue is, is this true, not does this work? Hypnotism works, but it doesn't create biblical truth. Stop yelling, Don. This is just one of the many passages, the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, that you could use to support the New Testament's call, the call of the New Testament, to the primacy of the place of truth. In genuine faith. It is absolutely of no worth to Paul whatsoever that these people might be comforted by the hope of eternal life. He he isn't interested. 
Not if there isn't truth behind it. He does want people comforted and encouraged, but not as an end in itself. There's not one subjective note in that whole text from 1 Corinthians 15. Either he rose or he didn't. And here's the important part. If he didn't rise from the dead, then their belief that he did was not only worthless, it's delusional. I am not lying. I heard a very, I won't say who, famous uh, wife of a TV personality, Christian TV personality, and he was talking to her in front of the whole crowd, and she said, it's so wonderful on Easter morning. Everything is so beautiful. I'd believe it all, even if it weren't true. Get the remote, like... What rubbish! So the issue here wasn't, is this belief helpful? Doesn't enter into the picture. C, here's another reason these... these, uh, foundations sometimes get poorly laid. Sometimes Christians are actually taught that faith and reason are contrary to each other. I can't tell you the number of times I've had some pastor, maybe even from a, a church in, in, you know, in, our, in our region, or some church leader in our own fellowship that will say something like this, you never experience God's deepest new thing until you get past your own head. You got to get your mind out of the way. You can't put God in a box of your own reason. Just get into God. However it's worded, the idea is not new at all. It's been around for a very long time. The idea that faith is best evidenced by abandoning reason. Faith is best evidenced by a willingness just to leap into the dark with nothing to cling to but God's hand. And then, sure as anything, I know what's coming next. They'll quote some verse from the life of Abraham or some passage from the New Testament that talks about the doubt of Thomas. Let's just look at that one real quick. John 20, 27 to 31. Jesus to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs, verse 30, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Pastor Don, blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed, 29. There. But this passage is not about believing without evidence. I mean, the reason Jesus chides Thomas isn't because Thomas wanted evidence but because Thomas hadn't embraced the evidence he had already been given 
See, by the time Jesus came again and appeared to Thomas, he had already given proof of his resurrection over and over. Thomas knew about these things. Thomas had heard Jesus predict his resurrection from the dead for almost three years. The woman who had gone to the tomb Easter morning, they had already come and given witness to the risen Christ. The other disciples had already, against their will, been convinced to believe that Jesus rose from the dead by his personal appearances to them. That's what Jesus was addressing when he spoke to Thomas. It wasn't that he had been given no reasons for faith. It's just that he had not received the reasons he had been given. Jesus already had given evidence of his resurrection. Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas because faith should stand without evidence. He rebuked Thomas because only so much evidence should be required. The New Testament is always founded on fact. Rock, hard, observable, objective fact. It's true. It's true. Um, God calls Abraham to a place and just says, go. He doesn't know where. It is true. We are all called to exercise faith when we don't have all the evidence we would like. Anybody else been there, done that? There are mysteries in faith that go beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Who who, who gets his head completely around the incarnation, the trinity, the unseen eternal world? So I get it. There are mysteries that are beyond the borders of where we can go with our reason. But that's not the same as saying faith is just irrational. Just because there are areas where God's revelation takes us beyond what our senses can grasp, that's not an excuse for not gathering all the information that is available. In order, in other words, it's true, faith doesn't know everything. But faith will want to know all it can. We're almost done. Point number two. We are 88% finished. What can be done to strengthen faith's foundations? I just want to go over a couple things real quick. First, face issues squarely. These kinds of intellectual doubts are like mold. They grow best in the dark. It is useless And it's futile to merely push them underground and pretend they don't exist. Primarily, Christians push these doubts underground because they think it must be a sign of weak faith to have questions. But it isn't. In fact, the Christian faith is a faith that has always invited investigation. The whole New Testament was written to deal with questions of faith to supply answers to doubts look at john chapter 20 we looked at these already 30 and 31 now jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so signs these refers to signs correct 
which are not written, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, so John says, here's why I wrote this. I wrote this account to supply reasons for faith. I wrote it to dispel doubts. As we'll see further in this series, not all doubts are handled in the same way. Not all doubts are intellectual in nature. By far, not all doubts are intellectual in nature. We think they are, but they aren't. But these kinds of doubts, foundational intellectual questionings, they're only going to be settled by studying the evidence where it's available. So face your questions honestly. God is not frightened by them. Secondly, and this is the last point, Everybody listening? Read. I could just say, God bless you, go home. Read. This kind of doubt cometh out in no other way. There are wonderful, clear, tough-minded answers to your questions. I remember, comma, I remember clear as a bell when I was in uh, grade 12 and different things that would go on in my mind. I was a pretty good kid. Didn't really go off the rails. uh, But I had all sorts of questions and doubts. And I can remember clear as a bell when Dad gave me a book by Elton Trueblood and it was called A Place to Stand. I still have that same copy on my shelf. I've read it 22 times. Philosopher. But it's not written heady. It's written for people like me. Remember the story of Archimedes? You know who Archimedes was? What he invented? He invented the lever, the fulcrum and the lever. Before Archimedes came up with that concept, it would be very limited, the amount of weight that any one person could lift. And Archimedes came up with the idea that if you had a rod, a heavy, unbreakable rod, and you had a fulcrum, a point on which you balance the rod... And if you had the long end out here, you could put something of incredible weight on one end and you could lift far more weight. It doesn't sound like much to us now. That was a huge discovery. Somebody came up to Archimedes and said, Archimedes, how much can you lift with this lever fulcrum principle? And his answer is famous. And it comes to the title of that book that I had given to me. His answer was, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I can move the earth. I still remember when I was given that book called A Place to Stand. This this rugged, tough-minded, philosophic approach that answered so many questions about the Christian faith. I can remember my first year in Bible school, high school, first year in Bible school, I wasn't even sure I was going into the ministry, and I started just devouring everything written by Francis Schaeffer. Remember when Francis Schaeffer was the coolest thing in the world? Read all those books. I remember discovering C.S. Lewis and going through mere Christianity and miracles and the problem of pain and God in the dock. If you haven't read God in the dock, not dock with a boat, British court, the dock is where the criminal stands. And the idea was God's under investigation now. God has to justify himself in everything. 
And the idea was, when I, when I was, by the time I was uh, just in the ministry of pastoring a little church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan, with on a good Sunday morning, 32 people, and there were all sorts of people that would come by and, and talk and argue, and I, I just was so grateful that I had just devoured so many things. I have all sorts of spiritual issues. You know that. I'm a long way from where I should be. But on this score, I've never had anybody. I've never had anybody. There's not an atheist in print, and I've read most of their books, that does, that does a dent in my commitment to Jesus. Because there's that foundation there. I don't mean that I'm brilliant, okay? I'm not bragging. I just mean that I've, I've put enough data into my mind that there's a resource for all sorts of arguments that come along. I may trip up and fall, who knows what, but I'll tell you this, no one will ever argue me out of my commitment to Christ. It is just the most sensible way to go. Read. Probably every Sunday night I recommend books. Good books, they're in our resource room, but I can't read them for you. Get a pen, get a piece of paper. That's old school. Get your iPad, get whatever you get. Read, take notes. Read, take notes. Read, take notes. Pray about what you read. Take more notes. Think. Turn off the TV. Think. How's that for a closing for a sermon? (laughs) Let's pray together.